0: It was a cold April night in 1912. Uh, The largest passenger ship in the world was making its maiden voyage from England across the Atlantic to New York City. They'd been out for four days, Uh, 2,200 passengers plus on, on board, many of them wealthy people And so for four days they'd been enjoying relaxing in these luxurious guest rooms and eating at fancy restaurants and swimming in the pool on the ship. This is a novelty at the time. But just before midnight, the ship ran into an iceberg. It was a glancing blow, but it tore six small gashes in the hull of the ship, and in less than three hours, the Titanic was plunging to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. 1,500 people lost their lives in that disaster. Now, one of the reasons so many people died is because the Titanic did not have enough lifeboats on board. The ship was deemed to be unsinkable, so what do you need a lifeboat for? They had about half the number of lifeboats they needed. But that's not the only reason that so many people died. Many people di- Get this, many people died because the lifeboats were only partially filled. Some of them were not even half filled. And so when rescue ships arrived on the scene, they began to pluck out of the water the bodies of 328 men, women, and children who had managed to put on life jackets and then plunged into the icy waters, but then froze to death as their cries to be rescued were ignored by the people in the lifeboats. Now, when I came across that part of the story recently, I was reading it, and I thought, well, surely the author is exaggerating things. So I researched it, and I found out it's exactly as he stated it to be. While people were drowning, while people were crying out for rescue, those in the lifeboats were were rowing fast and furiously in the opposite direction. And so one writer concludes... People died not just because the Titanic sank, but because the people who were already saved would not go back for the people who were not. Wow, let me repeat that. The people who were already saved would not go back for the people who were not. At Christ Community Church, uh, we believe that every person in our world is in need of being saved. The Bible teaches that we're all drowning in our sins, that every day we we think, we say, we do things that distance us further and further and further from a holy God. And unfortunately, this holy God is the source of life. And so sin cuts us off from life. Sin plunges us into the treacherous waters of death. Spiritual death right now in terms of our relationship with God. Physical death at some point in the future for every one of us. Eternal death forever and ever and ever. The wages of sin, the Bible starkly says in Romans 6.23, is death. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, has provided drowning humanity with a lifeboat. That lifeboat is God's Son, Jesus Christ Christ. And the good news is that there is room in the lifeboat for everybody who wants to be saved. So, how do people make it into the lifeboat? Well, first they got to hear about the lifeboat, they got to hear about Jesus. That's where you and I come in. So, welcome to week one of a three part series we're call, calling Storytellers Storytellers Communicating with a Sense of Urgency. Now, if you brought a Bible, I hope you did turn with me to Acts chapter 4. That's going to be our text for today. And take the outline from your program so that you can follow along. Fill that in as we go. I'm going to ask you to do something special with that outline later. So you want to fill it in as, uh, as I'm teaching. Storytellers, there's something powerful about a good story. A good story will capture people's attention, it'll inspire people, redirect people's lives, shape people's character. An Austrian philosopher by the name of Ivan Illich had this to say about a good story, neither, neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society, rather you must tell a powerful tale. One so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. A story that shines some light into our future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. Now the goal of this series, Storytellers series, is to teach you how to tell the most powerful, life-transforming story in the world, the story of God's salvation. This is the story that can rescue people who are drowning in their sins, whether they know themselves to be drowning or not. This is the story that can haul people into God's lifeboat, Jesus Christ. The kind of story that we're going to be talking about in this three-part series is what church people refer to as evangelism. We consider evangelism to be so important at Christ Community Church that every new ministry season that begins in the fall, every season we always begin with an evangelism how-to series, and that's what this is all about. But here's the downside of a how-to series, any how-to series. None of us is inclined to put how-tos into practice until we're motivated by the why behind the how-tos. Let me repeat that. We, we are not inclined, we're not, we're not motivated to put how-tos of any sort into practice until we understand the why behind the how-tos. So I can teach you how to, I can teach you how to tell the story of God's salvation to others, but that will not compel you to become a storyteller. Now your tendency like mine will still be to keep the story to yourself. So before I give you any how-tos, you need to understand why it's so important to become a storyteller. We need to understand that until we become storytellers, we're like the saved people in the Titanic's lifeboats. We're we're, we're rowing away from those in desperate need of rescue. We are abandoning family members and friends and co-workers and schoolmates and neighbors, people who are dying in their sins, people who will be lost forever. So here are four reasons why we've got to become storytellers. You know, four reasons why we can't keep the good news of Jesus to ourselves. And that's the title I'm giving our study of Acts 4 today. Can't keep it to ourselves. Why not? Four reasons. Okay, reason number one salvation is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. We can't keep the good news of Jesus to ourselves because salvation is found exclusively in Him. Now, I know the word exclusively really bugs some of you which is exactly why I chose it. You know, I I wanted to grab your attention. I I want you to understand why, why people absolutely must hear about Jesus from us and what's at stake if they don't. Let me give you a little background to this passage. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Jesus, a couple of months earlier, has died on the cross, risen from the dead and eventually returned to heaven. One day, a couple of his followers, Peter and John, are, are on their way to the temple for a time of prayer and worship. And outside the temple gate is this lame man begging. And Peter looks at him and he says, You we don't have any money, but I'll give you what I got. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And the guy leaps to his feet and begins to walk. This guy who's been lame for years. So a crowd gathers. They, they all know this guy. This is a, an amazing thing that's happened. And Peter takes advantage of this opportunity to speak to the crowd about Jesus. Peter immediately becomes a storyteller. This does not go over well with the religious rulers in Jerusalem who a couple of months er- earlier had been responsible for Jesus' death. And so that's where we pick up the story In chapter 4 of Acts, verse 1, follow along as I read in your Bible, uh, or you'll see it on the screen. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The religious leaders don't like what they hear is happening on their streets. A couple of Jesus' followers are preaching in Jesus' name. So they send a posse out to pick up Peter and John. And the posse is made up, look at verse 1, of priests, the captain of the temple guard. This was the dude in charge of maintaining law and order around the temple. He was also a priest himself. He was a second in command to the high priest, the head honcho. And then the Sadducees. The Sadducees were one of the religious parties in Israel. They were the counterparts to the Pharisees. The Sadducees especially were disturbed at what was happening, what Peter and John were saying. A couple of reasons. Practically speaking, the Sadducees were wealthy aristocrats who collaborated with the Romans. The Romans trusted the Sadducees to keep peace and quiet in the city. So the Sadducees realized if there was a disturbance, Roman soldiers would probably come in to squelch it and they would lose their influence. So a very practical reason. Let's... Put the kibosh on this right away. There was also a theological reason why they didn't like what they were hearing. See, the Sadducees, though they were a religious party, did not believe in the afterlife. They, they believed that this life is all there is. And suddenly, two followers of Jesus, whom they had they put Jesus to death two months earlier, and two followers are saying he's risen from the dead, and he can give power to come back to life to anyone who puts their trust in him. This is not a good message we got to squelch it as quickly as we can. And so they send the posse out. I, I'm amused by what I read in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 tells me they threw Peter and John in jail. Verse 4 tells me that they couldn't keep the gospel, the story, from spreading. The church grows to 5,000 people. It's like Dr. Luke who writes the book of Acts. He was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. He was a medical doctor. It's almost as if... He puts these verses next to each other on purpose. Little tongue in cheek, little chuckle here on Luke's part. He's saying, You know, you can jail Christ followers, but you can't jail the gospel. <laughs> you can't incarcerate the good news of Jesus. Go back to the text, pick it up, verse 5. So the next day the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Now now this group that Luke describes here is what's known as the Sanhedrin. He doesn't call them the Sanhedrin until later in the passage. The Sanhedrin was was the the religious ruling council in Israel. They were a combo senate and supreme court made up of 71 members, the high priest and 70 others. Verse 5 says rulers, that would have been the high priest's family. Elders, that would have been Sadducees and Pharisees and teachers of the law. The Sanhedrin. This is the group that had condemned Jesus to death. This is the very place where that condemnation had taken place. Don't think that slipped the minds of Peter and John. They know they're in deep weeds. Seventy-one pairs of glaring eyes, boring into them. Seventy-one hostile voices raised against them, demanding, Explain yourselves! Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting from a psalm there. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now Peter starts his defense by referring to the guy who had been healed. And then he quickly segues into a declaration of Salvation, capital S, provided by Jesus Christ. Now, in the English, you read that and you say, boy, Peter really did a leap there, didn't he? Sharp right turn, talking about the guy's healing, all of a sudden, whoop, let's talk about salvation. Actually, in the original Greek text, this was a very natural segue because it's the same word. The same word that you see at the end of verse 9, end of verse 10, translated healed in our English Bibles. You could circle that in your Bible. Last word of verse 9, last word of verse 10. It's the same word so-so in the Greek the root of the word from which we get salvation and saved in verse 12 so you can draw an arrow between the same word P- peter's saying you know jesus saved this guy from his lameness but what's more jesus can save you from the penalty of your sins which is death spiritual physical eternal death it's jesus who saves Jesus not only has the power to save people with a capital S, Peter tells the Sanhedrin he is the only one in the world who has the power to do so. Look at verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Why? Why is Jesus the only way to salvation? Now, before I answer that question, let, let me point out that Peter is merely repeating something that he'd heard Jesus himself say. During the course of Jesus' earthly uh, ministry, he had said in John 14, verse 6, to his followers, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, occasionally, people will say to me, they'll say, well, you know, I don't have any problem with Jesus. I think Jesus is a pretty cool guy. But it's his followers that bug me, these Christians who claim that Jesus is the only way to God. And I say, well, actually then your problem is with Jesus. (laughs) See, because his followers didn't make up this line, didn't make up this claim. They're, They're merely repeating what they've heard Jesus say about himself, that no one comes to the Father except through him. You know, back to the why question I posed a moment ago. Why? Why is Jesus the only way to salvation? Well, it has something to do with what Peter told the Sanhedrin back in verse 10. So go back to verse 10 with me. We've been in verse 12. In verse 10 he says, It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Now, interestingly, this is the third time in the book of Acts, and we're only to chapter 4 here, this is the third time that Peter has used this line with a crowd that he's been addressing. You crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. What I love about this you know, is that so many of us, we walk away from people with whom we've had a conversation about Jesus and we're saying, did we say too much? I hope I didn't step under toes. I mean, if I offended them, this could be it for our relationship. Evidently, Peter didn't have those concerns. He could look at people and say, you crucified Jesus. Good thing for you, God raised him from the dead. Now let me tell you something, if Peter were standing on this platform today addressing the four campuses of Christ Community Church, he would look into the camera and he would say, so you could all hear him, you crucified Jesus. There are two qualifications in this this line that make Jesus the only way to salvation. The first one is, Jesus paid for your sins. You crucified Jesus. You say, Peter, how can you say that to us today? This happened 2,000 years ago. We weren't even there. How could you blame us? Because, Peter, Peter would say, Jesus died to pay for your sins. What's the penalty for sin? Call it out death. So either you die for having unplugged from the giver of life or somebody takes your place. Jesus died for your sins. So in some way, you're responsible for his crucifixion. Let me ask you a question. Do you know anybody else in the history of the world who claimed to have died for your sins? Do you, do you know anybody who claimed to have taken the penalty you deserve, the penalty of death? I don't know of anybody. Je- Jesus is in a class of his own. Now, there's a second qualification. Peter gives us as to why Jesus uniquely provides salvation and that is that God raised him from the dead. You crucified Jesus but God raised him from the dead and Jesus now has the power to raise others from the dead. Now friends, if you need salvation from death, if death is your problem, If you're facing spiritual, physical, eternal death and you need salvation from it, i got to tell you, Jesus is uniquely qualified to provide it. And again, do you know of anyone else in the history of the world who has death-conquering power? I don't. This is why Peter can say, salvation can be found in nobody else. Well, Friends, if salvation is found exclusively in Jesus Christ, you begin to understand why it's so critical that we tell this story to others. 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. The Apostle John writes, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, does not have life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, does not have life. Say that with me. Whoever does not have the Son of God, does not have life. Say it one more time, all four campuses. Whoever does not have the Son of God, does not have life. Now I want you to call to mind right now, Somebody you know who doesn't have Jesus Christ. Could be a family member, close friend, somebody on your soccer team, the receptionist at the office where you work. You're not calling this person to mind in a self-righteous, condescending way. It's just that to the best of your knowledge, they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And now I want you to insert that person's name. You got a lock on somebody? Okay, I want you to insert that person's name in the blanks, three blanks up there, and I want you to read that to yourself with your person's name inserted. Okay, one of my buddies Bill comes to mind. I would say Bill is facing spiritual, physical and eternal death. Jesus Christ offers Bill life. Who will tell Bill about Jesus and salvation? I want to read this out loud, all four campuses. I want you to boldly read out. We're going to hear hundreds of different names when we get to the blank spots. We're going to start with the blank spot. So get your name ready. We're going to read it out loud on the count of three. And I'm going to be inserting Bill. You insert your name. Here we go. One, two, three. Bill is facing spiritual, physical, and eternal death. Jesus Christ offers Bill life. Who will tell Bill about Jesus and salvation? If you're a Christ follower today, if you have the life that only Jesus can give, it's because somebody told you. Because somebody told you about Jesus and salvation somewhere along the line. They didn't just live a good Christian life in front of you. Sometimes we're fond of saying that, well, I just live a good Christian life at work. I let that speak for me or at school or in the neighborhood. Well, that's wonderful. It's important. But people got to hear. If you've put your faith in Christ and you have life, it's not because someone just lived the good Christian life in front of you. They told you the story of Jesus and salvation. It may have been your mom. It may have been your best friend. It may have been your youth pastor or Billy Graham. It may have been a buddy on the softball team. It may have been your roommate back in college. But somebody told you the story. And if they hadn't told you the story, you wouldn't have life in Christ today. You'd be facing spiritual, physical, eternal death. That's why we can't keep the story to ourselves. That's why we've got to tell the story. You get it? Good. Number two, we've got to tell the story because people can be transformed into new creations. People can be transformed into new creations. Go back to the text. We dropped off at verse 12. Let's pick it up at verse 13. When they, the Sanhedrin, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Stop there. Now, the Sanhedrin was pretty honked off at the message of Peter, salvation in Jesus alone. But they couldn't, listen, they couldn't deny that Jesus had brought about an amazing transformation in the lives of some people standing there. There were exhibits A, B, and C right in front of their eyes. You know, exhibits A and B were were Peter and John. Look at verse 13 as we read a description of what the Sanhedrin was thinking about these guys. Two words in particular. First, they identified them as unschooled men. Now, this doesn't mean that Peter and John were illiterate. It means that they hadn't been to seminary like the other stuffed shirts in the room. It means they had never studied theology. They didn't have a theology degree to their name. And yet somehow they're quoting the Bible and they're talking about God and salvation like it's real to them, like they've got an inside track on God, like it's personal, like they know God. These unschooled fellas. And the other thing we read is that the Sanhedrin identified them as ordinary men. And now they're looking at a couple of blue collar guys, fishermen. And the Sanhedrin, by way of contrast, they're professionals. They're leaders. They're power brokers. Why aren't these ordinary dudes, Peter and John, why aren't they shaking in their sandals in front of us? Why aren't we intimidating them? Where is their courage, their confidence coming from? And to what? Look at verse 13. To what does the Sanhedrin attribute this remarkable display of character on on the part of Peter and John? They had been what? With Jesus. It must be a transformation that Jesus has brought to their lives. You know, a relationship with Jesus transforms people. I, I love the way that the Apostle Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, one of my favorite Bible verses. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Peter and, and John, they were new creations in Christ. They were exhibits A and B. And the guy who had been healed in Jesus' name, he was also a new creation. He was exhibit C. Look at verse 14. When the Sanhedrin saw this guy standing there totally healed, there was nothing they could say. I love that. Now, you've got to go back one chapter. Let me take you back to chapter 3. Because the, you know, the amazing story of this guy's transformation is worth reading quickly. Pick it up at verse 6 of chapter 3. Peter's coming to the gate of the temple and sees this lame man begging. He says, silver or gold, I don't have what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk, and then he went with him into the temple course, walking and jumping and praising God. He had some dance moves, let me tell you. Okay, And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know, one thing that keeps me sharing the good news of Jesus with others is my constant amazement at what happens, to use Luke's words here in Acts chapter 3 my amazement at what happens to those who surrender their lives to Christ. You know, I've seen Jesus transform people in so many ways. I've watched Jesus restore broken marriages, break addictions, give purpose to people who were leading shallow lives. Change character, selfish people becoming generous people, fearful people becoming courageous people. Let, Let me stretch your imagination for a moment. I want you to imagine the transformation that Christ could bring to some of the people in your life. Okay? Work with me here. I want you to imagine the transformation that Christ could bring to some of the people in your life. Can you, can you picture these people as new creations? Maybe the person whose name you put in a blank a few moments ago. Imagine your materialistic friend who's always spending money on herself for a trip to the spa or new clothes or cosmetics. or Imagine her giving money to the poor generously, sacrificially. Imagine the guy at work with the filthy mouth. You know, every other word is the F-bomb. Imagine this guy who's always blowing his top, reaming people out. Imagine God cleaning up his language and him offering words of encouragement to others at work. Just imagine that. Imagine your, your cousin who's racked up two or three DUIs, getting off booze entirely, living a sober, productive, fulfilling life. Imagine a person you know who's given to depression and despair being joyful. Imagine your buddy who's a womanizer. Anytime he talks about women, it's in terms of body parts. And you... Imagine this guy all of a sudden respecting and treating women in a dignified way. Imagine that. Now, now I, I know... I know I'm painting a Pollyannish picture here. I know know that when people surrender their lives to Jesus, they don't become perfect overnight. Even when I look at my own life, I'm painfully aware of the fact that I am not always a great walking advertisement of a new creation, and neither are you. (laughs) However, we have all seen pretty amazing transformations in the lives of people who have surrendered themselves to Christ, haven't we? I mean, you just saw one on the video today. Look at what God's done in Andy's life. And that should motivate us to be storytellers. That should motivate us to share the good news that can transform others into new creations. Every conversation we have in the course of a day, in the back of our minds, we should be thinking to ourselves, what would this person be like as a Christ follower, as a new creation? Wouldn't that be incredible? Third motivation. The third why, we can't keep it to ourselves. Number three, Jesus has given us a command and he expects us to obey. Back to the story. Jesus has given us a command and he expects us to obey. Pick it up at verse 15. So they they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. I love that line. You know, as they're conferring with themselves, they don't even want to say, Jesus. They ain't got to stop talking in this name. So then they bring Peter and John in. They got to use the name Jesus, much to their chagrin. They called him in again, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, so which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? Okay, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Peter and John say, you know, you tell us to shut up. Jesus tells us to speak up. So who do you think we ought to obey? Back a few chapters, beginning of the book of Acts, just before Jesus leaves the planet, Acts 1, verse 8, he gives the great commission to his followers. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And when you receive the Spirit, you'll be given power and you're to be my witnesses. See, there are no ands, ifs, or buts about it. You are to be my witnesses. You're to be storytellers. You're to spread the word. These these were Jesus' closing words to his followers. You will be my witnesses. Do Do you remember what his opening words to his followers were? When Jesus first invited people to follow him, what did he say? Matthew 4, verse 19. These are Jesus' words. Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Come follow me. I will send you out to fish for people. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Question number one. If you follow Jesus, what will he send you out to do? This is not a trick question. What will he send you out to do? Fish for people. If you choose to follow Jesus, he will send you out to fish for people. Here's the follow-up question. I'm going to ask it twice the first time. I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to think about it. If you're not fishing for people, are you truly following Jesus? Now, I'm going to ask it again, and I want a bold response all four campuses. If you're not fishing for people, are you truly following Jesus? No. no. C.H. Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century, said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's a very convicting statement. And I have to confess to you that sometimes I behave like an imposter. A few weeks ago, Sue and I were studying up in northern Wisconsin, working at our laptops all day, and then at the end of the day, we bring our bikes with us and we hit a couple of trails hard. One day we took off entirely and we uh, took our bikes on a ferry across to Washington Island. We got a special route takes us on a 25-mile loop, scenic r- route uh, around the island. So when we first got off the ferry, uh, there's a food vendor there, and I said, well, let's grab a bite of lunch. And we're standing in line, and this, this vendor, he looks out, sees that I'm wearing a Yankees T-shirt. And he says, hey, Coney Island, how you doing? So I get, get up to the, the counter, and this older gentleman, he says, oh, you're a Yankees fan? And I said, well, I used to be, as a boy... He said, oh, I used to be as a boy, too. He said, those were the days. Now, he's talking in a New York accent. I won't try to imitate. He's obviously from New York himself. He says, oh, DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle. I said, well, that was a little bit before my time. But you, you ever heard of Bobby Richardson? He said, oh, Bobby Richardson, second baseman. Now, if you were here at Christ Community Church the last weekend in June, on this platform, I interviewed Bobby Richardson. And so this guy looks at me and he goes, Bobby Richardson, what the blinky blank is he doing these days? <laughs> and I said, now listen to this. I said, he's traveling around and speaking. That was the end of my sentence. He's traveling around and speaking. I didn't say he's traveling around and speaking at churches, which might have, you know, Send us in a direction. I didn't say, he's traveling around and speaking about faith in Christ. He's traveling around speaking about the difference that God has made in his life. I didn't say, I said, he's traveling around and speaking. And I got on my bicycle and I rode away. And I'm about a mile away and, oh, I'm brooding on this. It's real quiet between Sue and me until suddenly I burst out with, I stink! I stink! I used a cruder word, which I won't repeat here, but I was so disgusted with myself. I stink. And Sue looks at me, she goes, you stink at what? I said, sometimes I just stink at being a witness for Jesus. Do you sometimes stink at being a witness for Jesus? Let me remind you, this is not an optional activity for Christ followers. See, if we're not fishing for people, then we're not following Jesus. And friends, anytime we are flagrantly disobeying Jesus, what should we do about it? We should recognize our sin and turn to him and say, please forgive me. And with the help of your spirit, give me a willingness to walk in obedience to you and strengthen me to do so. And Sometimes it seems like i got to pray that prayer every day with regard to this failure to be the witness I should be. Forgive me. You said, follow me, and I'm going to send you out to fish, and I haven't fished today. Forgive me. and Make me the fisherman you want me to be. Now, if, if you're thinking, boy, I, I need to be a better Fisher person than I am, let me give you two resources. One is this series. Don't miss the next couple of weeks. In fact, let me ask you to do something else. Take your outline. This is the motivation. The next two weeks, it's the how-tos. But you, you won't put the how-tos into practice until you understand why it's so critical. So take these four motivations and put them someplace where you'll see it this week. On, on your shaving mirror, on the dashboard of your car, someplace where you'll see it every day and be reminded of four reasons why you can't keep it to yourself. You say, oh, I haven't been filling in my outline. Well, then you got to go online and look at the whole sermon again, don't you? <laughs> Second resource is this. There are a couple of books And we're selling them during the month of September at all four of our campuses. Two books that have impacted me. I read them in preparation for this series, but quite frankly, every year I try to read a couple of books on evangelism so my fire will be reignited. One book is by a guy named Ron Hutchcraft, who I tried to get to come and speak during this series, and the guy was totally booked. But he's written a book called A A Life That Matters, and a great evangelist, great coach, If you read his book, it'll take your evangelism up a few notches, your storytelling. The other book is by a guy named Mark Cahill. Uh, some years ago, Mark had a, uh, a scholarship to play basketball, a sports scholarship at Auburn University. He played with Charles Barkley. And so in the course of his book, if you're a basketball lover, he will tell you about the time he was at one of Charles' parties and got to meet MJ and talk about Jesus with, uh, with Michael Jordan. But that's just, that's just a passing fancy in the book. Mark's book is really practical. So many things I came across underlined, oh, this is, this is so good. This will spark storytelling in my life so there are some resources third motivation fourth motivation rather the mission of the church generates joy and adventure back to the story one last time pick it up at verse 21 after further threats they let them go they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising god for what had happened for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old Thank you, Dr. Luke. It's a geezer, you know? Wow. People were celebrating the fact that Jesus had healed this guy. There was a block party going on in Jerusalem, and the Sanhedrin knew they couldn't put a stop to it. You know, Dr. Luke, who wrote this book of Acts, he also wrote a biography of Jesus called simply the Gospel of Luke. And in one of the chapters, chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, he tells of a time when Jesus told three parables back to back to back, the point of all of them being that when lost people get saved, there's a celebration that goes on in heaven. Even the angels throw a party. So if you want to know what generates joy and adventure in the Christian life, and if you're looking at your Christian life and you're saying, oh, that doesn't describe mine, See, I'm a Christ follower, but I wouldn't characterize my Christianity as joy-filled or adventuresome. If you want to know what generates joy and adventure in the Christian life, what what generates joy and adventure in a church like Christ Community Church, it's telling people about Jesus and seeing some of them get saved. (laughs) The early church knew that this is where the excitement was. By the way, you all should have broke out in applause and cheers when I said that last line. About telling people about Jesus and seeing them get saved. Yeah. 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 Too late. I'm sure at the regionals, you broke out in applause, right? The early church knew this is where the excitement was. And that's why when Peter and John, when they come back from their grilling at the hands of the Sanhedrin, the church gathers around them and says, hey, let's pray. Now, what are they going to pray? Oh, God, protect us from persecution. No, that's not what they pray. They pray, God, give us greater boldness. God, help us take take it up a few more notches here. And they conclude their prayer. Look at the closing words of their prayer, verse 29 and following. Now, Lord, consider their threats... And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Friends, a couple of weeks from now, we're going to do Ignite. If this is your church, be there. No excuses. We're gathering for an hour and a half of prayer on a Sunday night, and we're going to pray that God will shake our world. We're going to pray that God will speak through our lives and through our church ministry so that lost people get found and they're saved. Don't you dare sit in a lifeboat rowing the opposite direction a couple of Sunday nights from now. Gather with us and pray. See what let's see what God can do. This is where the excitement of the Christian life comes from. This is where the excitement of our church comes from. Some of you don't understand that. You understand that Christ's community has a kind of an exciting buzz about it, but you've never put your finger on why that is. Why is this such a cool place to get connected with God? Some of you think it's a cool place because the senior pastor's so cool. And that's not the reason. Some of you think it's now, I love you, but no. Some of you think it's a cool place because we've got cool worship bands or because we've got cool youth ministries, student ministries. No, that's not it. This is a cool place. It's exciting because we're about a mission. And the mission was given to us as a mandate before Jesus left the planet. Matthew 28, verse 19 says, Jesus says, I want you to go into the world and make disciples. Okay, so our mission is to make passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. How do you make passionate disciples of Jesus? It's kind of like the recipe for rabbit stew. You ever heard the, uh, the uh, Irish recipe for rabbit stew? Step one, catch the rabbit. You'll get that on the way home. <laughs> How do you make disciples? Step one, you catch people for Christ. How do you catch them? With a good story of what God's done in your life. With the story of, of salvation as outlined in the pages of this, this book. And as you tell the story, your, your own Christian life comes alive. As we corporately tell the story at Wow Weekends. And you come not just by yourself, but with a friend on your elbow. And there's excitement, there's joy, there's adventure around this place. i got to close with an analogy here. And, and while I do this, I'm going to ask, while I tell this, I want the bands on the four campuses to come on stage. They're going to close with a song that's going to drive home the theme of the day. But we're going to collect our gifts, and you need to understand that the offering you bring resource the mission I've been talking about today. So when you give generously, what you're giving to is people finding Christ and being saved. Okay, so just keep that in mind when we take the offering. But here's the analogy. Let this one sink in. Suppose... Suppose that a millionaire friend of yours... How many of you have? now you don't have a millionaire. Let's suppose... A millionaire friend of, of yours asks you to host a dinner party at his house. He says, this is going to be a small, intimate affair, 10 people around the table plus you you, and me, and you get to extend the invitations. Here are 10 tickets, and he gives you 10 tickets to pass out. You could give them to anybody you want, a friend at school, somebody at work, uh, a, a member of your extended family, but every person who comes to the party, the millionaire says, is going to get $100,000 cash and a new Mercedes sports coupe. Let me ask you a question. How long do you think it would take you to pass out those tickets? And as you passed them out and someone said, hey, what are you doing? Would you say, i got to invite people to this party? Or would you say, I get to invite people to this incredible party where they're going to get $100,000 in a car? God has given you tickets. Are they still in your pocket? If you hand them out, people receive them, they're going to get so much more than $100,000 in a car. They're going to get life everlasting. Are you walking around saying, i got to evangelize? Are you saying, I get to tell this story. Is this cool? Is this incredible or what? I get to tell this story.